The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased this week to welcome the physicist Carlo Rovelli, whose new book, well, it's a new old book, is Anaximander and the Nature of Science. Carlo, welcome. Many of us will never have heard of Anaximander, but this is a book that's absolutely full of love for him. Can you tell me, first of all, why he's so important and who he was, and, and second, I suppose, why we... Why we don't know him? Why he's more famous? Not more famous. Sorry. Well, thanks a lot, Sam. That's wonderful. I almost didn't hear about Anaximander before starting the project of this book. And that's the motivation for the book. I was shocked by the fact that he's not well known. When I stumbled upon him and I sort of started studying what he has done and his role in the development, I would say, of human thinking, I couldn't believe that it's not one of the recognized, one of the major names around. And we might go to ask why it was not recognized. He's the very beginning of the a line of development that uh, evolved uh, into Western philosophy and Western science. So we're talking about uh, almost three millennia ago, 26 centuries ago, in the early times of the Greek civilization. We know his thinking through a lot of references to him uh, in ancient authors. Uh, Aristotle talks a lot about him, for instance. And if we trace back a number of key ideas, methodological tools uh, in our Western thinking, a, a number of lines point directly to him. Both, I would say, the naturalistic approach to the world, trying to understand nature in its own terms rather than trying to understand nature as the manifestation of something non-natural or, or extra-natural thing. The very idea that we could uh, learn by changing something we assume to know about the world, he's in some sense at the root of cosmology, astrophysics, <laughs> biology, history, geography. Here is the first world map, a, a geographical map about the world. He's an absolutely major figure. And there is a, really a, a rupture, like the French say, a, a cut between what we have before him and what we have after him in the way humans talk about the world. And in terms of what we know about what he said and what he thought, as you say, a lot of what we've got, I mean, we have a couple of lines of his work, which maybe we'll get onto in a second. But what were the theories he had that are the sort of, you know, important ones, if you like? What were the great leaps he made? He wrote a book. The title of the book was Perifusius on nature. Physis is the world from which physics come from. So my own discipline, which is physics, is named after his book, so to say. Aristotle took the book physics from, the title physics from him. In the book, what the presumably was, according to the people who reconstruct the content of that book, was a an overview, a picture about what we know about the world, history, nature, the cosmos, the way things work, all talked in, in, in naturalistic terms. So there was a picture about the possible evolution of the cosmos, some ideas about the possible origin of the species, ideas about natural phenomena, what is rain, where the come from, what is an earthquake, what, what it is, what is uh, what are the winds. And there was uh, perhaps the most 
spectacular content of his book, the first enunciation of the, the picture of the world that has become characteristic of the Western civilization, the Mediterranean and then, um, and then Western civilization, which is the idea that the earth is surrounded by the sky and uh, the sky is all around it. And remarkably, it's no other civilization got to this idea. Humankind always thought that the earth is below and the sky is above. There's only one point in the history of humankind where somebody realized that this is a partial view. And a more complete view is that the Earth is a stone floating in the middle of nothing. And that's his most spectacular idea, his idea that Karl Popper, the great philosopher of, of science of the 20th century, described as was the most, one of the most portentous ideas that humankind ever, ever had. I mean, that's completely new, as you say in the book. You know, every ancient text we have and report of any ancient civilization we have says they believed that the earth was, I mean, perhaps not flat, but, but there was nothing underneath us but more earth or turtles or whatever the hell it was. How did Anaximander arrive at that view? How did he change this? Ah, this is a, <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is a, this is the question. This is a beautiful question. That's somehow asking myself this question is what has originated the book. Let me first say that it's not only that up to him, and up to him, of course, I mean, he's long a time ago, but remember, civilization is much more ancient than that, right? Up to him means centuries and millennia of well-developed human civilization. So not only nobody arrived at that, neither sort of Chinese, the Indians, the, 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 the Africans, the Americans arrived at that uh, realization until they were told by <laughs> somebody who learned from the Greek who learned from Anaximander. So it's really unique. Now, how he got there? Here's the answer, as I can imagine, we can reconstruct it. And that's also the, the key point of somehow the, the key message of the book. First of all, come on, it's not so hard. The sun settles in the west and then rises in the east. Is that always a new sun or is the same sun? It's the same object, right? So if the same object, how does it go from west to east? Is there a tunnel below in the earth? And, uh, and suppose there's a tunnel through, it passes through. What about the moon? And what about the stars? If you look at the stars in a clear summer night, you see very clearly that during the night, the stars rotate around us. So the, the entire sky is sort of rotating rigidly around us and all the stars go down in the west and then reappear in the, uh, in the east. So it seems pretty obvious that if all that stuff passes below us, below us, below us, there should be open space. Right? So once I say that, it seems to me everybody should say, yeah, of course. So therefore the earth is not lying on something else because uh, there should be sp open space for all this to pass through. Uh, but then the question is, why have nobody else got it? I mean, uh, was everybody stupid before <laughs> Aximander? Were all, everybody in Egypt or in Babylonia stupid? What about the Chinese who didn't get to this idea all the way to the 17th century? Obviously it was not so easy to accept the conclusion. Why? because uh, of the obvious objection. If there's nothing below the earth, the earth would fall. The genius of Anaximander is to have been able to find the right answer to the objection why the earth should fall. And what did he do? He questioned the question. He asked, why should it fall? We think that it should fall because we extrapolate our experience, which is that heavy, heavy things fall down. And we make it a universal thing, which is always we do when we, we have some experience, we think that that's it. 
Okay. And that's not it, because a stone falls toward the earth, but this doesn't mean that the earth as a whole should fall down. And in fact, the way out to solve this uh, puzzle is to realize that down is defined relatively to the earth. So the earth itself doesn't have a down. So things fall toward the earth, and uh, in Sydney, things fall upward with respect to us. So up and down are different in different parts of the, of the earth. And that's what Anaximander understood. But to understand something like that, it means to be ready to change our understanding what is the meaning of high and low, up and down. It means to be ready to change the full picture of, of the cosmos, uh, rearrange the picture of the cosmos in, 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 in your mind. And we know that this is possible because this is what Copernicus did. This is what Newton did. It was Darwin did, right? But the next man is the first. I mean, he didn't do that on the historical ground of others who have uh, redesigned the world. He was the first one who do that. While I was writing this book, I had this fantasy of, you know, this man uh, going to the main square of Miletus and telling to his friend, you know what? I think we've always been wrong for millennia. And the cosmos is not what we always thought we are. And then writing a book about that and convincing everybody that he was right, everybody else was wrong. That's spectacular. Yes, I mean, it's a... It's a- a decisive break. I mean, if I'm, if I'm understanding you rightly, saying that maybe it's not the fact that he happened to come up with some answers that were right, it was that he thought of asking different questions. Yeah, yeah. And that's the core, because I think the core experience of a scientific investigation is that you, you, you start by asking the wrong question. <laughs> and then you, you, you come up with clarity by questioning your own questions. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Miletus. One of the things the book strives to do, and I'm very interested in this, and it places him in a world. And this world he was in, Miletus, in the sort of 6th, 7th century BC, what, what was distinctive about that that helped create the conditions that would allow Anaximander to think what he did? And you also actually place him in a little philosophical tradition of these three Ionians, his teacher Miletus and Anaximenes, is it? Who? Yeah, Thales', Thales is teacher and Anaximenes is... Uh... Can you paint a bit, a bit that Ionian world? Yeah, it's a, it's a peculiar moment of the history of civilization because up to that point, talking about the span of, of centuries here, the majority of humankind, of course, lived in tribes wandering around the world or in agricultural societies. But there were some places like Egypt, Babylonia, China, India, and, uh, and others, and also in the Americas, so it's quite early that um, settled big cities and big state structures uh, where a lot of knowledge was accumulated. There were writings, since writing is just a couple of millennia older than, than this century we're talking about. But this civilized and places full of knowledge and structure, they were all organized around big monarchies where a, a social, religious uh, power structure formed society and was a civilization. And then there was this uh, area of the world where Miletus, Miletus is, was an independent city and was the beginning of this uh, strange Greek civilization, which was a constellation of independent cities, uh, where power was negotiated and renegotiated continuously through this process of taking down the kings, having some aristocracy, having some dictators, some democratic revolution, and so on. Anaximander is a contemporary of Solon, who was a traditional person who wrote the first democratic constitution in, in Athens. So politically, you can say it's the beginning of democracy. Also here, of course, one can debate what is 
what we mean by democracy. But certainly the word democracy was, was born at that time. And the idea that people would rediscuss the political relations and negotiate them and change the rule of the game continuously was part of the political climate of that particular area of the world. While at the same time, Miletus was obviously under the direct influence of the old powers and the old knowledge. Miletus had a, a rich, perhaps the richest at the time, Greek city. I mean, Sparta and Athens were not yet powerful and dominant and had colonies everywhere in the Mediterranean where the Phoenicians would allow them to, to go. Had trade with Egypt, had trade with Mesopotamia, with Babylonia. Clearly, Anaximander was under the influence of the old knowledge. In Babylonia, there was astronomy, there was mathematics, uh, there was uh, piles and piles of written stuff from which to learn. So it's a funny balance between the access to a lot of knowledge and the freshness of a world which is free from a rigid uh, mental and political and religious structure that has answers already. In, in a sense. And I believe that what I just said uh, should be the motivation, the reason, the, the fertile ground from which a huge revolution like his could come out. You talk about Thales, his, his sort of teacher, his relationship with that, because he's not, you know, you, you talk about Anaximander as this figure who makes a complete change in way of looking at the world, but he doesn't totally break, does he? with his predecessor. He, you know, I mean, it's, it seems to be the heart of this book, this kind of negotiation between novelty and using what you've already got in the past. Yeah, you're very right. In fact, it's all a book about negotiations and, and, <laughs> and, and equilibrium. The same way in which Miletus is just is this funny equilibrium position between access to old knowledge, but the new way of doing politics, a new way of doing things. And it seems to me what is core what was going on there is there was access to knowledge, but at the same time, the freedom to question knowledge. We don't know much about an ex-mander as a person or a school around him or um, yeah, more general cultural ground around him. But the traditional story of the relation between him and his master, which was Thales, Thales is one of the seven wise men, according to the Greek uh, tradition, was a very venerated uh, thinker in Greece. And if we read what the ancient attribute to Thales and what the ancient attribute to Anaximander, what is shocking is that there is a great similarity between the two and continuous differences. For instance, Thales starts this question Aristotle called the search for the arche, the, the, the fundamental principle on which everything follows, or the fundamental substance on which everything is built. Thales is the one who starts saying, okay, we have this variety of objects around us, a substance around us. Could there be a unifying substance, entity, out of which anything is sort of transformation in some form? And as this it's a great question. I mean, it's, uh, modern physics, in a sense, has come out of this question. Yes, you what you would say. what physicists do. Exactly. I mean, it's exactly. And the, the continuity is direct because uh, the atomism uh, that inspired Newton is directly connected to ancient atomists of Democritus and Leucippus, who is directly connected to Anaximander Aperon. Tom and Aperon have the same, have the same, there's a direct filiation between. So the question, what is it everything made from, starts in Miletus, was posed in Miletus. And Thales starts a first tentative answer to that, which is everything is made of water. Why water? Well, water is traditionally the, the source of everything in ancient thinking, except that the, the previous water is sort of metaphorical, divine, it's an expression of a deity, while Thales' water is water. 
<laughs> and that's a sudden naturalization of things. Now, Anaximander came, buys completely the idea that from Thales, that everything should be made by a single substance. So builds on that, but asks the obvious question, why water? I mean, why should, why should he call it water, this basic thing? So he basically changed the name of this thing, calls it aperon. Aperon means the indistinct, out of, the indistinct substance of... We see this more. Thales, in his idea that water is the basis of everything, has this um, build on the ancient mythological image of water everywhere, and uh, earth... Uh, the ground could be like a disc floating on the immense ocean. And this allows him to make speculations about maybe a, a earthquake is when the, you know, the, the disc floats because the water is, is moving and things like that. And Anaximander realizes the ocean surrounding this disc is useless, doesn't play any f- scientific role, I would say. So Anaximander Earth floats in the middle of nothing, but it's still a disc which obviously he inherited from, from Thales. So what's going on here? There is a, a great richness of ideas in Thales, and Aximander follows many of them, same naturalism, same idea of search for the archaic, same question about the shape of the world, but changes. And that's completely new in the history of thinking, because before that, everything we know about how humankind structure the thinking of the world is either following a teacher, the, the master, the, the ancient world is full of masters. Okay? Jesus is a master. Uh, Pythagoras was a master. Uh, uh, Confucius was a master. And they're followers. But the followers never challenge the master. And here is a follower who cha- challenged the master. Okay? Something very strange. A few centuries later, Cicero in, in Rome still writes, uh, uh, how strange, Thales and Anaximander were so close, and yet they disagree. How is it possible? (laughs) How is it possible? That's the core of what science is all about and philosophy is all about. And in a sense, the Western civilization grew up of this simple idea that you can follow a master, learn from it, absorb everything, and challenge, and do better, and change. So this critical thinking is is the first spark of critical thinking as the engine for making knowledge grow. Yes, and you say that, you observe in the course of the book that the, the sources from which we know about what Anaximander said, you know, among them Aristotle, will say, you know, he held that or he believed <laughs> yes, that, not yes. he observed or he realised or he knew that or whatever the cognates would be. What's the significance of that? Is that them absorbing his lesson? I think that's one of the hints that tell us why he's not more recognized. There's a lot of sources in, in ancient uh, writers that refer to him, uh, even in things that seems completely obvious to us, as ideas of him which are not clear. Typically, this happens for his uh, ideas about meteorological phenomena. One of the most fascinating discoveries, I would say, of, of Anaximander is something we all learn at school, in primary, in primary school, which is uh, where does the water of the rain come from? Okay. Up to that moment, whatever you read about that is that the water of the rain comes from uh, Zeus uh, sending down water or from, I don't know, huge uh, oceans over, over, over the sky or almost always some connection to divinity in some form. And Anaximander, I mean, having this naturalistic approach to things, reflects and says, wait a minute, we see water evaporating. 
if I leave a glass of water on the table after a few days, it's empty. So the water has evaporated, it's gone up, and we see water coming down. Obviously, it's the same water. So he's the one who understood uh, this beautiful thing we learned when we were kids, the, the cycle of, of, of water, right? It's a marvelous, for me, it's a marvelous example of the fact that uh, there is something not obvious, where does the water come from? Nevertheless, we can think and understand, and there's a comprehensibility of nature. So he's the one who understood that. And yet, when the ancient refer to him, they say Anaximander thinks that water of the of the rain comes from the evaporation of the of the ocean or the water on Earth. Anaximander think thinks that the wind are just moved by the fact that some ground heats up because of the sun. Anaximander thinks that, and so on and so forth, which are all right things. But now we know they're right. <laughs> At the time, for the first centuries after him, this naturalistic approach to understanding the world, which became so successful in modern time in the ancient world, was still one of the cultural currents around and not yet successful as modern science has made it. It also does seem to go backwards. <laughs> you know, there's this moment when you've got an Aximander and... You know, they're starting to think about things in naturalistic terms. But as you frame it, I hope I'm, I'm getting this, this right, that's a sort of brief political moment that vanishes as these very top-down, hierarchical, theistic empires arrive and succeed ancient Greece. I mean, does it, how long is it that, that we're sort of set back, if you like? Obviously, we cannot look at history as, as, as one directional thing. History is a fine thing that goes back and forth and, and right and left and then changes continuously. But from the perspective of the development of our understand, rational understanding of the world, it seems to me that there is an obvious connection between some moments which have been far more fertile and periods in which much, much less fertile. And uh, there is a connection with this political situation exactly as you, as you said. There was there have been a window in the Mediterranean area between Miletus, between Anaximander, to the expansion of the Roman Empire. It's not short. It's uh, five centuries. It's half a millennium. Remarkably, half of the things we learn at school, <laughs> in primary and middle school, which took long for humanity to derive, they were all developed there. In, and not just science is not a uniquely Western thing, but Today, all over the world, what people study at school, in large part, was developed in Alexandria during that period, in Athens during that period, or come out from Alexander during that period. And it uh, closed up with the expansion of the Roman Empire, which, from the point of view of development of science, was really the end of it. I mean, it continued a little bit. Ptolemy is uh, it's already the first century. But Ptolemy was essentially summarizing the result of uh, Alexandrian astronomy, geography, literary criticism, uh, the, the study of the body, geometry. I mean, uh, you name it and you ask where, where was it originated in that period in which a fractured political situation in the absence of a centralized dominant uh, religious and, and political structure. The Roman Empire in large part canceled all that what remained was cancelled shortly after by the Christianization of the Roman Empire, which closed the research centers in Alexandria, which closed the philosophical schools in Athens and elsewhere. And the rational 
investigation of the world stopped in the Mediterranean, went back to the West only through a complicated circuit through India and Persia and the Arabs, where a lot of ancient knowledge, rational knowledge was uh, preserved, remarkably preserved and a little bit ameliorated. Let me put it this way. I don't want to sound West-centric in any sense. Civilization is a global affair in which all parts of the world have contributed in a continuous conversation and dialogue in which things have been exchanged continually. I think the world has been far more connected than what we usually uh, think about. But one of the main jewels that the global current civilization of the Earth has inherited from the past uh, is this rational approach to the world, which was developed uh, in the Greek classic and Alexandrian period in ancient time and in modern Europe a millennium later, okay? For centuries, the Indians, the Persians, the Arabs kept this knowledge and ameliorated a little bit. But before having somebody who did what Alexander did with Thales, which is to learn and challenge the basis of it, you have to wait Copernicus. Well, it's interesting you say in the book that Copernicus comes out of a society that's actually weirdly similar to Miletus. Surprisingly similar. Copernicus is, uh, was born in sort of Poland, what we'd call Poland today, and studied in Italy in the Renaissance, which has a political and economical structure which is surprisingly similar to Miletus, right? And is a place where you, again, challenge received you, but careful, not challenge received you in the sense you rejected. The most wrong image of the modern scientific revolution, Francis Bacon and all the way to Newton, is that this is a rejection of the past. This is not a rejection of the past. This is a reconstruction of the past and building on the past. If you look at the book of Copernicus and the book of Ptolemy, it's the same book. It's a slightly new edition of the same book, the same language, the same mathematics, the same questions, the same kind of solutions. So obviously, and, and if you read Newton, Newton says very explicitly that Half of what he's doing is to reconstruct the ancient knowledge. Newton even says silly things, like the old king of Rome uh, was a white man that knew a lot of science that we don't know today. I mean, this is nonsense, right? (laughs) But uh, Newton was under this impression that what he was doing is still what Copernicus and the other were doing, which is to a large extent to reconstruct the Greek knowledge, but also ameliorating it. And that's exactly what the Arab and the Persian and the Indian did not do. They just changed it a little bit. And the amelioration that uh, Copernicus brings to the ancient astronomy is not just changing the details, making better measurements, cleaning it. It's changed the basis because the book of Ptolemy starts off by saying, by a beautiful, beautiful chapter explaining why the Earth is round, what the size of the Earth, and why the Earth cannot move. And Copernicus says, no, 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 that's wrong. So it's exactly the same step that Anaximander takes with respect to Thales, which opens up the development of knowledge. You you learn, you buy, and you challenge the core. Well, I think this is something that's that's fascinating to me in the, your book, that those of us who have a kind of vulgar idea about what Thomas Kuhn was on about in the structure of scientific revelations will have this kind of idea that science proceeds by completely dethroning its predecessor. I got convinced that Kuhn got this completely wrong. 
And that's the source of, of the book. And also that Popper got this completely wrong. With all the immense respect I have to their increased clarity that they've brought to our understanding of what the scientific enterprise is, certainly Popper's right in saying that we don't verify theory, we falsify theories, okay? We just uh, check that they're right, but this is, doesn't prove a theory right. Uh, as you can see, the proof theory is wrong. And certainly in that I'm completely Kuhnian. Kuhn, this great philosopher of science and historian of science, broke back to sort of the Anglo-Saxon philosophy of science, uh, a large amount of historicism that it was is needed. I'm, I'm a follower of him entirely. You understand science by looking at the history of science, the development of science. I think you say somewhere in a footnote that actually there are Italian historicists of science who, who kind of got all this right but don't get noticed in the way that Kuhn did. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're overplaying a little bit, yes. But there is, a, there, is a, there is a tradition in history, sort of the same Hegelian tradition. There's, there's a lot of philosophy of science in Italy, which is pretty good. Just thinking of Definetti, Definetti is a probabilist. I think is a very good insight in the nature of science. In the key fact that science is not about certainty. Science is about getting better pictures of reality, which are more reliable. And reliable doesn't mean certain. What I was told that school science is, is the following. You make measurement, you write equations, you make predictions. If the predictions are right, your equations is the right theory. If the predictions are wrong, you throw it away, you try something else. And then something hit me. If this is what science is, to make predictions, to if this is the core of science, to make better predictions, Copernicus is not a scientist, okay? And if this is what science is, uh, the fact that the Earth goes around the sun, or the fact that the Earth is not the center of the universe, is not a scientific fact. We cannot prove or disprove whether the Earth is the center of the universe. It's not a scientific statement in the sense in which I'm told science is. Yes, you surprised me by saying, apropos what you've just said, that Ptolemy's kind of cosmology is more predictably accurate. Oh, yeah, Ptolemy is spectacularly predictably accurate. <laughs> I mean, this is a, this is a, uh, Ptolemy is another badly presented, we have the book of Ptolemy, right? So we, there's nothing to speculate about. Uh, I, I looked at the book of Ptolemy and, and people study it in detail. So you can take the book of Ptolemy today, Okay, ignore everything else you know, just learn the mathematics, it teaches you the mathematics needed for that. You take the numbers there and predict the position of Mars and Venus in the sky today. Okay, uh, Jupiter, 2,000 years after it was written. So this is spectacular predictive science. I mean, this is the incredible power of mathematical physics and careful observation. So there's careful observation, equations, predictivity capacity, better than Copernicus, <laughs> right? You have to wait Kepler before, before so that the Copernican system becomes good enough to beat the, the Ptolemaic one. So there's something strange here. So what Copernicus did, right, is not better equations, is not a Kuhnian revolution in the sense of something doesn't work and this, this works Okay, he did nothing else. So my book, Anaximander, it's I'm a scientist. I try to do quantum gravity. I keep reflecting of what really am I supposed to do, and I think what I'm supposed to do is not what Popper and Kuhn tell me to do, namely, you know, to pick random equation from the sky and try whether they work, work or not, or to give right predictions or not. What I'm supposed to do, I mean, if I was good enough, is to be as good as Copernicus find a better way for organizing conceptually reality in a way that works better and is more fruitful. Because there's no doubt, what did Copernicus do? He took the conceptual organization of the cosmos, which is the cosmos is two parts. Earth thinks, 
mountains, birds, coffee, you know, and heaven things, the sun, the stars, moon, etc. And he said, okay, we think this is completely different. Okay, that's not a good organization of the cosmos. The better organization of the cosmos is the sun is one thing. There's another thing, which is the planet, which is very strange, right? Because mountains and birds and things, you put in the same category, with this little dot, which is out there, which is Venus, okay? And then there's still another category, which is the moon, just by itself. Okay? It seems foolish. Why should you rearrange the world in these completely foolish things? But it's obviously right. It's a right perspective. How would I put it? If you could think of flying very far away and look at this from very far away, then the distinction earth things and, and heaven things wouldn't make any sense. So he finds a reorganization of reality, reconceptualization of reality, which is more powerful. And how can he find it? By looking at the details of the Ptolemaic knowledge about the world and finding the funny coincidence, the funny things that don't work, and taking this as hints. So taking very seriously the previous knowledge and seeing this strident point in the previous knowledge and taking this as hints to say, well, maybe I could think this is exactly what Anaximander did, right? Nothing makes more sense as the earth below and the sky above, but there's something strident, okay? How does the sun go through from one side to the other? And so you think, well, maybe I can rearrange that in a way that makes more sense. And that's what Einstein did. And that's what me and my colleagues who are paid for doing quantum gravity are supposed to do. That's what we have to do. And you actually, the book also describes a very, you know, a struggle that takes place not between one century and the next, but through the whole of human history. I mean, as you say, you know, the obvious way of seeing the world is sky up, earth down. And yet we've all absorbed that Copernican worldview. But we still struggle, even though it's nearly 100 years old, with the Einsteinian challenge to the idea of simultaneity. And, you know, we have an instinctive understanding of time that we still cling to in the face of all the work of you and your colleagues. Why is that? Why does it take us so long to absorb, you know, it takes a couple of thousand years to absorb what Anaximander and then Copernicus saw? Oh, because we're all stupid, of course. I mean, you, <laughs> our brain is limited. It's just, it is what it is. We should, we should imagine that we are perfect rational beings that uh, that get clarity every time we, we see something new. It, it, uh, I think science goes very slowly, very slowly. From the text of Anaximander, which says that the Earth is, is surrounded by the sky, to the moment in which people in his civilization accept this idea, this is a century and a half, okay? Plato... I think that the earth is round and the, the sky goes around it, but he's not convinced yet. Aristotle writes that he's convinced that this is it. <laughs> and, and in fact, he himself brings a beautiful observational support to this idea. But if you think of the Copernican revolution, the earth moves, the earth spins and goes around the sun. Uh, Copernicus' book is, is uh, it's, it's the 16th century. You have to wait. Uh, the great discussion about that is in Galileo book, which is 150 years later, and nobody was yet convinced about that, right? So, so uh, Galileo was very, very good uh, rhetorically. He was a great political defender of this idea. You know, he completely convinced Newton, which is a generation later, and Huygens and Hoyle and all these people. So it's slow. Einstein wrote his uh, major works on relativity, special general relativity, 100 years ago. He has convinced completely, and it's huge empirical support to uh, the scientific community, but uh, absorbing the Einsteinian revolution, it will take time. I think it will take it will happen. Look, if technology goes, if humankind avoids self-destructing itself, as it seems to be doing and doing nuclear war and all that stuff, if we survive and technology keeps going ahead, 
there will be a moment in which, how would I put it? Today, my brother comes in Sydney, I call him, and I say, oh, it's a nice sunny day here. And he says, it's night here. So it's visually obvious that day and night depend on where you are. If my grandson will have his brother living with a starship and coming back 10 years later and not having aged more than a month, it will be obvious that time is different depending on what you, what you are. So it's not that Einstein discoveries are more difficult than understanding that in Sydney people live upside down. It's a way of adjusting our mind to a better understanding, a more complex understanding. I don't think, I think this is idea that Newton is easy, Einstein is difficult, is completely wrong. Newton was very hard to digest at his time. Copernicus was very hard to digest at his time. And Einstein is still hard to digest in our time. In the course of the book, you are defending the scientific method against, you know, theistic appeals to authority and mythological ways of thinking. But you also get a kind of impassioned attack on the, the other end of things, the apparently sophisticated idea, very popular in, you know, particularly kind of social sciences and, you know, theory-infused humanities, that truth itself is relative, that scientific truth is an instrument of political power or situational power rather than, you know, an eternal verity. How, can you explain how you, how you counter that and why you feel so strongly about it? Yes, that's another theme in which I go in this book. This is a book in which I have uh, sort of put together slowly decades of reflection about my own work and rational, rational thinking. And that's, that's a major theme in which I go. I find once again that there's a balance to be, to be taken here. And there is a mistake in, in, in separating two alternatives. One alternative being, to, to make it a little bit exaggerated perhaps, that science is a deliverer of certainty and, and, and truth. And the other being that we have no way of distinguishing what is right, what is wrong, because right and wrong are culturally determined and therefore they're always relative to a culture. And, uh, and I have many pages of this book that I argue against both this view, okay? Because the first one, it's just wrong because we don't have certainties. But the second one, it's wrong because uh, the entire civilization is a tool for distinguishing what is right, what is wrong. That's what we do in our thinking. And the fact that we accept that we're not sure, the fact that we accept diversity, the fact that we realize that within different cultures, this uh, judgment are different and that we shouldn't a priori assume that our is right and the other is wrong, doesn't mean that there is no way of debating about us and converging toward a step ahead in understanding, something that works better. Well, there's a lovely passage or example you use where you talk to an academic who's who's been looking at the Chinese experiment to, I think, to, they're, try, they're trying to discover how close the sun is. That's right. And they're using almost exactly the same experiment that Eratosthenes uses exactly. to determine the circumference of the earth. Can you explain how that, how that works and also how the Chinese caught up? Yes. So what happens is that in the third century before our, our era in Egypt, Eratosthenes made this very, very famous and celebrated measurement of the size of the earth. He got astonishingly right. So in fact, the Greek world and the Middle Age world knew that the earth was round and knew exactly how big was the earth. When uh, Columbus wanted to navigate to China going west, uh, he was wrong because he... He had a friend, an Italian astronomer, that has recalculated that and came out with the conclusion that the Earth was smaller. 
What was wrong? The people who told him, you cannot get to China with the current naval technology were right, okay? Then he was, you know, lucky there was a continent in between. (laughs) (laughs) That was a measurement. And the way the measurement was done, it was by measuring the height of the sun at some day and then going south a few hundred kilometers and make the same measurement. And so the, the more you go south, the more the sun is higher. And from that, with a little bit of geometry, you can compute the size of the Earth because you correctly interpreted the fact that you, you go south and position of the sun changes because the Earth is round. And so you, you move, you make an angle. Now in China, remarkably, roughly at the same century, the same measurement was done. So an emperor sent a scientific expedition south to measure how much, when you go south, the sun is more upon your head, but was misinterpreted because... The idea was the Earth is flat and the sun is close. So by going south, you're more near the sun, you're more under the sun, okay? So I read a scholarly analysis of this comparison between these two measurements, beautiful, beautiful article, because it it compares Greek science and Chinese science in the different cultural contexts in which was was done. Very, very interesting, marvelous, I would say. Then I got to the end, I said, wait a minute, this article doesn't say one thing that the Greek were right, the Chinese were wrong. So I called the author of the article. I said, why didn't you say that? And the answer is, well, because there's no meaning in saying one is right, one is wrong, because in the cultural context of China, that was right, and the cultural context of Greek, that was right. And then I said, wait a minute, what's going on here? There's something deeply wrong. If in the academy, this is the idea, it seems to me there is something deeply wrong. Because of course, if you want to understand what happened, you have to frame it in the cultural context, You shouldn't blame the people for doing something wrong. But if you want to understand the history of knowledge of humankind as a whole, you should understand in which sense one is right and one is wrong. And I know exactly in which sense one is right and one is wrong. And the answer is the following. When the two cultures clearly started a dialogue about that, which happened later, several centuries later, immediately one of the two, I mean, the People are intelligent in both places. One of the two said, oh, boy, yes, you got it right. I got it wrong. So, which means that, of course, there are different cultural contexts, but they communicate. And when they communicate, together are motivated to get clarity. One picture of the world is better than the other one. The Greek picture of the world is, in this sense, objectively better than the picture of the world. From whose perspective? From the perspective of the Chinese. We immediately bought it when we saw, when they found it. Yeah, no, it was very optimistic kind of view of cultural exchange and how it can work. One of the things that seems to run through this conversation is that certain political formations are more friendly to the development of science, that there's situations in which you can argue against authority, and that's the habit of mind, you know, are conducive to the scientific method. Does that mean that the idea that science is above politics or aside from politics needs to be complicated or ignored? No, because all the people who talk about cultural relativism and the fact that rational knowledge cannot be disentangled from uh, from power relations, they are completely right. I'm not saying that they're wrong. (laughs) Uh, They're completely right. I think that, once again, the reaction against cultural relativism based on the idea that, oh, therefore there is a rational perspective which is uh, stronger and outside the cultural divide, that's wrong. And that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that, uh, I'm saying the opposite. We cannot step out from the cultural relationship and think that there is a 
absolute rationality, like we cannot step out and say that there's no right and wrong. We're always inside. We're always inside the power structure. I mean, I'm sure that Anaximander had some political enemy, I'm just dreaming, political enemy that was telling him you're stupid because there was some policy involved in whatever he was writing, like is happening in science every, every moment. Certainly, science developed particularly moments of freedom of thinking, but let's not overplay this either. I mean, Soviet Russia did some of the best cosmology ever, okay? The Russian scientists in the most totalitarian moments of the Soviet Union developed ideas on which we're all building today, in which after the fall of the Soviet Union. Alexandria in the third century was not a democracy. It was a kingdom in the hand of the Ptolemies, the, the Ptolemy, not the scientists, Ptolemy, the, the kings, other <laughs> the other Ptolemies, which were absolute rulers, uh, but they were very enlightened rulers, putting a lot of money into science, right? So that's also a wonderful way of developing science. <laughs> if, you're, <laughs> if you're a king, that would have a lot of my... Millionaires are listening in. Yeah. Right, and so on. I mean, the Communist Party China now today is putting a huge amount of investment in the development of science, which is completely free to do critical thinking within, within scientific... Uh, so let's not do black and white once again. But I think the, the cultural relativists have definitely something to teach to all of us in uh, telling us the lack of certainty, the lack of point of view, the lack of an absolute right, uh, rational standard of truth. Uh, but they, they get it wrong when from that they claim that there is no argument that we can play in arguing what is right, what is wrong, both in the moral sense, in the truth sense, or what is beautiful, what is ugly. It's the same thing, right? We learn from one another aesthetical values and they, they evolve. And the fact that they're culturally determined, it doesn't mean that there's no distinction between beautiful and ugly. Now, alas, we're running out of time, but I wanted to end, if I may, by drawing us back to the man, the man the book is about, Anaximander, because there are about four lines of his work. They're rather kind of gnomic and riddling. I was fascinated by the way you read them and how you, you know, what you see in them as being tokens of how science works in quite a basic way. Can you maybe tell our listeners what Anaximander actually said that we know know of? Let me put it this way. When I talk about the Anaximander contributions, I refer to what the ancients say about him. Because if we had to rely only on the single four lines we have about him, in my opinion, there's a lot of being written about this line. Heidegger has pages and pages about this line, right? But come on, give me four lines of whoever you want and I can turn it in whatever I want. So yeah. You extrapolate from the context. So I think the, the risk of doing the same with him is, is immense. So here are the four lines in the translation I like, which is my twisted translation of others. All things originate from one another and vanish into one another according to necessity. And they give to each other justice and a recompense for injustice in conformity with the order of time. It sounds beautiful, poetic. What the hell it means is up to everybody. Everybody can read what you want about there. On the basis of the strongly naturalistic, pre-scientific, if you want, reading I have an Aximander, one possible reading of that is the, the two ideas here. One is that things happen according to necessity, which if you want, all he's saying is don't things don't happen by the will of the wish of the, the whims of the gods, but they happen because there's something happening here. So there's the core enunciation of what is going to be the idea that nature is governed by natural laws here. Ancient science, astronomy, spectacular success of ancient astronomy is the discovery that the heavens move according to law that we can write down. From Galileo on, 
modern science is a discovery that things move according to law that we can write down. And this can be read as a clear statement that things don't happen by chance, they happen according to necessity. Which might be wrong, because we just discovered quantum theory where maybe they do happen by chance, a close parenthesis. And the second part, it says they give to each other justice or recompense for injustice in conformity with the order of time. And is the idea, once again, that uh, this laws governs, governs how things happen, not how things are. Science has progressed both in ancient and modern times by giving exactly laws that describe what happens in time. In the order of time is a beautiful expression. It's an expression I copied from my title of my book about time, the order of time. Except that in that book, <laughs> the order of time, what I actually argue is that time itself, it's a notion that like up and down for an eximander, we give it for granted and maybe to understand quantum gravity, we have to understand it, which is more complex and more relative. So in a sense, what I'm doing in the book, The Order of Time, is saying, thank you, Anaximander, for telling us, but you might have been wrong. That's what you have to describe. It is to study how things change in time. And we have to do with time what you did with up and down. Which is a whole other story. Carla Ravelli, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> thank you very much.